The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine. Thank you, Tom. At least better. That's good. Thanks for your prayers. <laughs> no I problem. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, thank you. Well, Father, we uh, we just recently... If I, By the way, sure. if, if I may here, I would ask everyone to pray for Jerry Wilson, a dear old friend. Just passed away in the last uh, two days, so please keep her dear soul in your prayers and that of her dear husband also. And uh, I'm continuing to pray for both of them, remembering them at the altar. So valiant uh, champions of the faith from way back. Uh, uh, those who oppose modernism and out of love for God remain faithful to the traditional Catholic faith uh, in its integrity. So. Uh, Definitely. These are the members of the old guard. We have. We owe them a great deal. Definitely. Thank you. Uh, well, well, Father, we just recently, this past Sunday, celebrated the Feast of the Holy Family, Jesus, mm -hmm. Mary, and St. Joseph. And I thought uh, this article that uh, I received would, uh, would actually tie in nicely to that, mm -hmm. to that feast and that theme. And uh, this is from a website titled uh, Deep Roots at Home. And there's a very interesting article that, that you passed on, Father, and uh, it's titled, The Reason Today's Kids Are Bored, Entitled, and Patient with Few Real Friends. Mm -hmm. And this is from, uh, I believe, an occupational therapist who, uh, who says she has uh, years of experience working with children and parents and teachers. And uh, she says, Father, that our children are getting worse. She said that it's, it's possible to, to mold the brain, to remold the brain. And she says that this is occurring with our children today and uh, our, our children's brains are being remolded in a mm -hmm. very negative manner. And she gives, uh, I, I believe she has five, um, five, five big, big points that she goes through here. And the very first one at the top of the list is, is technology. She says that a lot of parents attempt to use technology with their children as kind of a, a free babysitting service. But mm -hmm. she says, in fact, that it's, it's, uh, it's not free. There's uh, a lot of damages that can go along with that. Just one little quote here. She says, after hours of virtual reality, Processing information in a classroom becomes increasingly challenging for our kids because their brains are getting used to the high levels of stimulation that video games provide. So what do you think about this, Father? We've talked about technology before on the program and how that relates to the, the morality aspect of it. But in particular, with, with children, how does technology impact them? Well, there's no doubt that as the brain develops through childhood, it is responding to its environment. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, parents who are very communicative with their children and uh, uh, they, they know that uh, their input is very important for the development, the proper development of the child's brain. And so what she's pointing out here, as I understand it, is that uh, uh, you put, give the wrong stimulation to the brain of a child in the development, developing stages, that brain is going to develop in a different way. And not just... Uh, develop, you know, in, in sort of a vague sort of uh, generalized way, it's going to uh, change the actual structure of the brain. 
the actual development of the brain uh, physiologically is going to be affected by by this. And uh, as she points out, uh, when you bombard the child, uh, you know, through the senses and ultimately going to the brain with this flashbang um, sensory images of, uh, uh, of the virtual reality and so on, the child's brain is actually being influenced and affected in such a way that it is developing some things uh, in reaction to all of this virtual reality, the digital world that is pouring in. And, but it's not actually connecting with the real world. It's not even necessarily being formed in order to be in connection with the world. It doesn't develop the ability or the skills to even connect with the real world. So that for it, for that child, the real world will be the digital world, it will be what we now call the virtual world. That will be for that child. That child's brain is developed in order to function only in that, in that capacity. And this is a real tragedy. She says, um, that the children are bored and they're entitled and they're impatient and that makes perfect sense um, you would expect them to be bored because the real world is not as entertaining as the fake world uh, the digital world that we're bombarding the child with day and night you know um, the uh, they're entitled, of course. They they would expect to be entitled because, in that world, I mean, they're they're virtually lords of that little world of theirs. Okay, and uh, they're they're there, um, especially if they're pushing all the buttons, you know. And uh, and uh, it, it looks as though maybe they're in control because they're the button pushers. Maybe they think they are, but the fact is that they're being enslaved by whatever it is on the screen that, that entices them. And so they'd have this sense of entitlement that I'm in control and I must get what I want. And thirdly, impatient, I must get what I want right now. It's a matter of pushing a button and I get what I want. Uh, and that's all that is involved. I don't have to wait and I shouldn't be expected to wait. It's outrage if I'm required to wait for something that I want. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense that, um, you know, if this is how the children are being raised, that they would grow up to be bored with the reality. Um, want to live in a virtual reality, which to them is more real than anything else, um, and that they would be, have a sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this whole entitlement uh, scam, as you know, is something that is one of my bet noirs. It, it, it really, really, really bothers me, this entitlement business, you know, because uh, we, we have the kids being taught today uh, self-esteem. And whenever I, I hear people mention, you know, self-esteem, I mean, this goes together with that sense of entitlement. I think nothing would breed a sense of entitlement so much as uh, inculcating in the children this idea of self-esteem. Now, when parents mention this to me about how someone has low self-esteem or this child did this because she did not have enough self-esteem and so on, and I point out that this is not a Catholic concept at all. Um, this this teaches the child that just because you're you, because you exist, because you are, you have a right to all these things, and and you you know you should consider yourself wonderful just because you are you. Uh, the only being in existence of whom that is true is Almighty God, who is perfect in Himself, and uh, only God is entitled to self-esteem, unconditional self-esteem. Uh, because he is 
you know, he is who is. He is existence and he is, he is perfection. Creatures are not that. Creatures are not that at all. And uh, I, I, some people have a hard time making the distinction to realize that the self-esteem movement is very, very bad. And uh, I try to impress upon them that the Catholic concept is not self-esteem, but self-respect. But they don't see a difference between the two. And as I've mentioned before on the program, I'll ask them a question simply to show the distinction. I'll ask them, do you think Adolf Hitler had high self-esteem? And of course, they say, oh yeah, oh absolutely. Do you think he had self-respect? No. Joseph Stalin, high self-esteem? Oh yes. Self-respect? No. Mao Zedong, right? The communist uh, warlord over in, in China who took over in the late 1940s. It is responsible for Communist China being dominated by the Communist Chinese Party, Chinese Communist Party, and uh, he had a great deal of self self esteem, enormous self esteem. Clearly, no self respect, because no self respecting person would have done the things that he did, like Stalin, like Hitler. <clears throat> and I mean, I could go right on down the line. I could talk about uh, Nancy Pelosi today. Lots of self esteem, right? Bill Clinton, huge self esteem. Hillary Clinton. Enormous self-esteem, right? Self-respect, not so much. There's clearly a difference there. The Catholic understanding is that we have to have self-respect. But when you talk about respect, well, we talk about respect as being in relation to something else. Like in respect to this or in respect to that. And, uh, and that's how we are as creatures. We are in relationship to Almighty God. And that's the standard his standard. Our Lord saying, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you know. And our Lord saying, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, uh, seek first the justice, the kingdom of God and his justice. I mean, these are operative things. These are things we're called upon to do. And things we're called upon actually to become by the grace of God, by responding and corresponding to the grace of God. That's what self-respect is all about. It's not a matter of saying, well, I'm just wonderful the way I am, and everybody has to admit that, accept that, and give me what I want, because I deserve everything. I get a big ch charge out of these commercials that say, get this, is you deserve this, you deserve this, get this that you deserve. I'm thinking, how do they know what I deserve? Who do they think they are? What, they know that I deserve this? It's, it's, it's the modern world, it's the world we live in, where everybody has to be his own little god mm -hmm. and goddess. Uh, goes perfectly in line with neo-paganism and modernism, by the way. But this is the mentality, and this is what worries me. So many of our own Catholic people have fallen into the self-esteem trap. And I think this breeds that idea of self-entitlement in the children. And I see that we're constantly fighting against that sense of entitlement that they have. But there's nothing more deadly to self-respect than self-esteem. And uh, so I, you know, I made a little detour there, but I, I just think there's a, there's more to what she's saying here than might meet the eye. Yeah. And uh, and then the impatience that comes with it. You know? And I think you you touched on a couple of her other points too. Uh, her numbers two and three that she says here uh, the, that kids get everything the moment they want it, and also that kids rule the world. She gives a, a few examples of this where. Uh, a child says, I'm hungry, and the parent says, well, I'll stop at the drive-thru in just a second. They say, I'm thirsty. They say, okay, well, here's a vending machine. 
the example of the, the kids ruling the world, she, she says she often hears things like, well, my son doesn't like to eat vegetables, so he doesn't mm -hmm. have to eat them. Or uh, she doesn't like going to bed early, so she doesn't have yeah. to. Uh, do you see that? Do you see these kind of things happening, Father? Where, where, uh, well, I do. I mean, I, look, you see grown-ups who, who are traumatized by having been forced to eat peas when they were kids, you know. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, they turned out okay, all in all, you know, they might not eat many peas these days, but I mean, they, they survive. But nowadays, parents wouldn't require them to eat the peas. They would just say, oh, well, you can't, you shouldn't be forced to eat anything or even put anything in front of you you don't like. And so we'll cater to your every whim, you know. And this is very deadly, again, to self-respect. It may, it certainly launches their self-esteem into the stratosphere but it destroys their self-respect. But that's, that's the impatience we're dealing with too, instant gratification. Mm -hmm. In a virtual world where everything is a matter of pushing <clears throat> buttons. Yeah. Seeing what you want to see, hearing what you want to see, uh, hearing what you want to hear and so on, yeah. and not having to eat your peas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Father, what you Even virtual peas. Virtual if you had virtual peas, you could <laughs> press a button and blow them up <laughs> and get right. the gratification from that's that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Father, what, what do you think about this this fourth point here that she titles Endless Fun? Uh, she says, we've created an artificial fun world for our children where there are no dull moments. Uh, she says, the moment it becomes quiet, we run to entertain them again because otherwise we feel that we are not doing our parenting duty. Mm -hmm. Do you say that it's the, the duty of parents to create a world of endless fun for their children? Is that true? No, the parents are not there to entertain their children. Okay. Right. The parents are there. Uh, entertainment is an excuse for thought. It's a substitute for thought. And so we have children today who are being raised to be socialists. I mean, there's a reason why there's this, this heavy leaning towards socialism among the young right now. Because the young people, not all of them, not all, certainly, but many of them, and so many of them enough, it's kind of, it's, it's a very dangerous at this point. It could reach a tipping point. So many of them are being raised, well, we talk about snowflakes. They cannot, they cannot take care of themselves. They cannot with, withstand any pressures. They cannot, they cannot deal with any difficulties. Um, they are going to grow up totally dependent. And that's exactly a, a population you need for socialism. You need a population that needs the nanny state that, that feels that this is uh, the only right thing for them and they can't survive without it. They, they cannot survive in a, in, a, in a world that does not take care of them and cater to them. So, um, I mean, the idea, the whole idea of socialism is doomed in its very principles. You know, the idea of the government, okay, having control over what everyone needs to live essentially basically everyone's lives because everybody in socialism has to fit in somewhere and that somewhere is going to be dictated by the society society will dictate it where you fit and what you are to do and what you're allowed to do and uh ultimately it's the government the government consists of politicians and bureaucrats and if you were to ask one of these young uh, snowflakes, uh, pro-socialists, you know, well, would you want the government controlling your life? I imagine that person would say, well, of course not. They'd say, well, you have a lot of respect for politicians. Well, no, I really don't trust them. Well, what about bureaucrats? Well, what's that? You know, and you try to explain to them, well, 
the politicians, you know, they're the ones who appear on the TV screens and make all the announcements, and the bureaucrats are the one who then implement their commands and, and their, their laws, right? And the Will, Ro Will Rogers sense of Congress makes a joke and it's a law, you know? Um, and uh, you would say, well, no, I, I wouldn't want anybody running my life like that. But you see, that's the very essence of socialism. That's exactly what you get. Whenever you have a socialist society, that's what you've got, necessarily. So, uh, but they don't, they don't get that. But even at that, they'll still push for socialism anyway, because they still feel the need to be taken care of. Somebody has to be there to provide for them. So that when they fall and they scrape their knees, somebody's there to, you know, to, to kiss it and put a bandaid on it and, and, you know, pat them on the head and, and all that and send them. This is, this is the society that these people need to, need to live in because they can't, feel like they can survive in any other society. So this is, this is the, the worry that we have that we're going into now. So I think what this author is saying pretty much um, uh, lends itself in this direction to this understanding that she foresees problems. I mean, when you have uh, children who are growing up, be bored, entitled, and impatient, uh, you are laying the groundwork for uh, a basically a, a population of uh, social uh, ripe for socialism. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the point of the, the inability to think because she talks about the, the brain being a muscle and how we have to, to, to actually mm -hmm. use that muscle to, to form it. And uh, mm -hmm. I think you definitely can see that in the world. Well, the today. brain has to be built. It, 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 it does build over mm -hmm. time, right? It, you know, you look at the boredom and the need for entertainment. Well, look at the bread and circuses in the Roman Empire. Yeah. This, you know, led to the ultimate destruction of the society. The, the, yeah. the proud, in a good sense, I mean, in a sense, the natural, uh, not arrogant. Some, well, it was probably very arrogant anyway. But they had, in the ancient civil uh, Roman Republic, let me put it that way, they had a certain sense of self-respect. But you could see even there it gave way to a, a, this self-esteem idea that was so corrosive, mm -hmm. so damaging. Mm -hmm. The bread and circuses in the Colosseum and, and, and the circuses, uh, the racetrack, and then the martyrdoms that went on there, the gladiatorial fights and so on. Yeah, that's what they substituted for thought entertainment. Well, Father, her, her final point here that uh, she makes as far as the problems that she sees with, uh, with today's children's uh, she says uh, this this final problem is limited social interaction, and this kind of mm. ties into the um, to the technology thing because she says rather than actually you know actual real human interaction, the uh, kids are just busy with their gadgets, and she she places a lot of the blame with parents mm. because she says a lot of times if the parents are not busy with the gadgets themselves, they'll kind of mm. hand off a gadget to their children rather than actually mm. interacting with them. So how how important is uh, this actual human interaction for children? Oh, it's, it's essential for them if they're going to grow up. I mean, God created us to be social beings. And uh, it's, it's the devil himself who wants to isolate us from God and from each other, right? The two great commandments are that we are bound to God by love, with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. At the Last Supper, our Lord even amended that to say, I, now I command you as a new commandment to love each other as I have loved you, which raises the bar very high here. But uh, social, the social media 
I, I call it the anti-social media. It drives people apart from each other. And works very much against that idea of charity, divine charity, connecting with God and with our fellow men. Uh, it really is anti-social. It's meant to atomize society. People can be uh, manipulated very easily if they feel very isolated. Even in a, in a room full of people who are all, you can crowd a room with thousands of people and they can all feel very isolated there and very much alone there because they can't communicate. They're, they're not in, in communication with each other. Hey, if you, Tom, if you, if you packed a, a, a church on Sunday uh, with, uh, well, like our own church, you, you got 600 people in the church. And before Mass, you just said, well, I just use your devices until you hear the bell ring, sanctuary bell. How many people would be sitting there just, you know, on their, on their devices, right? Their electronic devices, parents and kids and everybody just doing whatever they're doing on those things. And uh, they, they certainly wouldn't be communicating with each other, which you wouldn't want them to do in, in church anyway, but they wouldn't be communicating with God. They're not communicating with anything but virtual reality there, whatever somebody's putting on a screen in front of them. Uh, it, it's, it just represents such a, a force, a, a, an attractive force now. One of the first things people do is pull, pull out their electronic devices when they have a moment, a moment of downtime. Uh, whatever it is, I mean, they stop at a stoplight. They have to pull it out and take a look, you know. Uh, it's as though they can't let their brain rest and think. They have to keep pouring something into it, right? When they can, and they have to go back and check this thing over and over again. It's almost like OCD. I got to check my device. I got to check my device. I got to check my device. You know, in case I miss something, I'm going to check it. Something came in in the last five minutes. I've got to find out. It's a compulsion, and it's very deadly. But the, uh, you see, it's, it's endemic now that you see teenagers. You see them at the airports, and uh, when we're traveling, we stop at a restaurant to get a bite, uh, bite to eat. And you might see four teenagers sitting at a table with each other, and they're not saying a word to each other, not looking at each other. They're not even, even necessarily being aware of each other's presence. <clears throat> There's totally, each one is totally absorbed in his own little device. Right? That's pathological. There's a very deep pathology here, and... Uh, those who have, uh, those who are actually invented these devices, are making the money from these devices, are marketing these devices, they, many of them realize that, and they will restrict their children very severely because they know this is bad medicine. Mm -hmm. But they're making a fortune off of a lot of parents who don't restrict their children and whose children are being severely damaged by this. Mm -hmm. So, um, by the way, does she give any practical advice as to what to do about uh, this? She does. She kind of has a, a counter to each one of the uh, the points that she made. And uh, I'll just go through them real quick. The, the first one she says is limit technology, reconnect with your kids emotionally, mm -hmm. uh, train delayed gratification. Uh, don't be afraid to set the limits. Kids <laughs> need limits to grow happy and healthy. Teach your child to do monotonous work from early years as it is the foundation for future workability. And uh, see her final one here is to teach social skills to your children. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a counter to each one of the points. Well, all too often parents themselves don't have those social skills to teach. True. They should learn them <clears throat> in order to teach them. But, I mean, as we travel, we see this. We see so much of this now. The parents themselves don't know where to begin, it seems. Mm -hmm. But uh, that first point she makes, though, uh, to... Uh, 
to limit the technology since, mm -hmm. yeah, right. you know, I was reading a survey recently, which uh, was a survey of, of children, actually young teenagers, I think, like uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, who were asked, what change would you want your parents to adopt if they were to change anything, what would you want it to be? Something like 67% of them or so, two thirds of them chose that the first thing they want their parents to do is put away their cell phones. Really? Yeah. Wow. Just so they the kids don't feel like they're cell phone orphans. You know, I mean, they they, they may have parents and be living under the room of their parents, and they bit, but they can feel like they're orphaned because their parents uh, basically have adopted their cell phones and divorced their kids. Yeah. Uh, and the kids have a hard time getting their parents' attention. What are the parents? This is a, a formula for kids acting out and acting up too. If, if kids find that the only way they can get their parents' attention is by, you know, uh, setting fire to the to the greenhouse or whatever, <laughs> and uh, I mean, parent, children will go to a, a great lengths to get their parents' attention. Um, they need their parents' attention, even if it's very bad attention. Um, Shows it how how shows how important it is to them. But we want them to have the good attention of their parents, mm -hmm. not to be fighting even for bad attention from their parents. Right. Well, Father, if we could, I'd like to transition into uh, another another article. This is uh, a different, totally different topic here, but a familiar one to the program. This is an article by uh, Peter Kwasniewski, who, mm -hmm. whose name is, has been uh, rather recurrent on our program. This article, I believe, was, was posted on LifeSite News, and it's titled, Could God Permit a Heretical Pope to Remain in Office, and Why Would He? Uh, so he asked that, that question uh, rhetorically, Father, and uh, he says in here that it seems more reasonable to conclude that the Pope could be even a formal heretic. Uh, he mentions the Code of uh, 1917, Code of Canon Law, where... Uh, the church essentially said that any office becomes vacant upon the fact and without any declaration by tacit resignation recognized by the law itself if a cleric publicly defects from the Catholic faith. Uh, but he says, Father, that it is not impossible for a heretic to occupy an ecclesial office. Uh, and the reason is that the church is defined not only by belief and loyalty, but also by place and time. What do you think of that, Father? Is that true? I think it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me, anyway. Yeah. But uh, Peter Kwasniewski uh, has a doctorate, in, I believe, in history, though. He's not a theologian, by any means. Um, so why it would make more, more sense to him that a pope could be a pope and a formal heretic at the same time mm -hmm. and not lose the papacy because of formal heresy. I mean, this is he's just speculating... From a layman's point of view, that it makes sense to him, that's all. That's, that's the only value that his, it makes sense to him that it could and likely could be, would be so, right? But he's contradicting uh, doctors and saints of the church. He's contradicting St. Francis of Sales. He's contradicting St. Robert Bellarmine about that. Now, I've seen people try to explain away um, St. Robert Bellarmine's words and St. Francis de Sales' words, try to explain away mm -hmm. What they appear to say, I mean, the, 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 the obvious sense of their words would be that a, a man who is a pope would lose the papacy when he lost the faith. Mm. And that would be obvious when he becomes a formal heretic, okay? Uh, the, the great uh, theologian Cajetan 
uh, said that uh, this, he would cease to be Pope, but um, it would require a formal declaration by the episcopate, uh, by the bishops, to declare that he had become a formal heretic, had lost the faith, and therefore had lost, had abdicated from the papacy. But all of these authors do point out, though, that uh, uh, losing the faith by formal heresy would mean that one would have effectively abdicated from the papacy at the same time, by that very fact, by adopting the formal heresy. Now, um, so why uh, Peter Kwasniewski would think that he can contradict these, these authors, and I don't know, but he evidently does think so. Um, you know, does he say, he says it makes more sense to him, right, mm -hmm. that his position would be true. Um, is this one of those where someone says, well, of course, the one thing that he could not do is uh, proclaim a, uh, an error against the faith uh, uh, ex cathedra. Mm -hmm. He says that, right? What does he say there? He says, uh, well, he starts out the article by saying, can a pope be a formal heretic but still somehow continue in his office? And then in parentheses, although he will be prevented from declaring heresy ex cathedra. Uh, and then he quotes an article from 1 Peter 5 that uh, makes a compelling case that the answer oh, okay. is yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're contortionists. They're, they're mental theological contortionists to try to avoid conclusions that they find very uncomfortable. But, I mean, if, if the standard of faith in the papacy is, uh, is, is so low that the only thing you can say a pope cannot do is declare ex cathedra a heresy, okay? To hit, declare a, a, an error against the faith, um, ex cathedra, then the, the, what is required of the Pope is less faith than is required of anybody else in the world. Any other Catholic in the world would cease to be a Catholic if he embraced a formal heresy publicly. He would be excommunicated, right? He would have lost the faith and he would be considered a heretic and therefore not a Catholic, but not the Pope. The Pope is the only one who can do that and still be a Catholic. In the sense that he's still the Pope. Now, it would really be strange if they'd said, well, no, no, if he's a heretic and embraced formal heresy, he wouldn't be a Catholic, but he'd still be the Pope. Now, I'd like to hear if they, if they would actually go that far, you know. But anybody else in the world who embraced formal heresy would have uh, fallen away from the faith. Um, and therefore would cease to actually be a Catholic. But, um, but here you have uh, the, the idea that a Pope doesn't even have to have that. He doesn't even have to have the faith in order to be the Pope. If they would, if, as I say, if they would go so very, well, he doesn't have to be a Catholic either, you know. Uh, he doesn't have to have the faith at all to be a Pope. As long as he didn't try to pronounce anything as cathedra, you know, that, you know, we just have to say, well, he continues to be the Pope, even if he personally doesn't believe the faith. In other words, to put this into effect, operatively, you could have a man who says, I don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. I don't believe in the Incarnation of Christ. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm an Arian heretic. Okay, I don't even believe in God. But as long as he doesn't try to proclaim it as cathedra, he's still the Pope.
Now, does that make sense? No. I'm sorry. But this is what he says makes sense to him, and this is very worrisome. But you see, this is an example of what happens when you're trying to be a conservative Novus Ordo. When you're trying to follow the Novus Ordo, justify the Novus Ordo, be part of the Novus Ordo, and not face the reality that the Novus Ordo is modernism, which is the essence, essence of anti-Catholicism, condemned by St. Pius X as a synthesis of all heresies. And this, they're trying to find a way to reconcile these two irreconcilable things, modernism and Catholicism. And they're desperately trying to salvage Francis's papacy because they can't imagine that it could be otherwise. But so it's much more reasonable to him that Francis could be a formal heretic and still be the Pope than it is than the, than the opposite. That Francis could be a formal heretic and not be the Pope under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. This doesn't make any sense at all, really. No. But this is the, the contortions that people, uh, the, the, the mental gymnastics they go through, the intellectual gymnastics, and even, even um, just uh, falsifications they go through in order to avoid a conclusion that they're afraid of, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a real problem here. And at the very, very least one could say, with, uh, reasonably at all, is that there's a very serious objective doubt about the legitimacy of Francis. At the very least one could say mm -hmm. that there is a doubt about it. You know? yeah. um, it's getting to the point where many people say, well, I mean, it's beyond the level of doubt here. You know? Understandably so, when you consider what Francis has done, what he said. Um, but that Francis could actually hold up the entire catechism, burn it, and say, I don't believe any of this, any of this, but I'm not going to proclaim any heresies ex cathedra. I'm just telling the whole world I don't believe anything of the Catholic faith, but he's still the Pope. I'm sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't wash. Yeah. Um, why, why, would he, what, why would he say that this makes more sense to him? Does he explain here? why this makes more sense to him to say that Francis doesn't even have to believe any of the faith. He could be a formal heretic with regard to, I mean, a, a, an apostate is one who denies all the doctrines of the Catholic faith, right? St. Pius X said modernism is a synthesis of all heresies. Well, I mean, that's what, a, that's what apostasy is, right? So if you're a formal heretic and you deny one dogma of the Catholic faith, right? You're a, you are a, f a formal heretic if you, you know it is a dogma of the faith and you reject it. But you've already re rejected the virtue of faith and denying one truth of the faith because you de denied the motive of faith. And that's where we get to the virtue in the soul. If you've lost, lost the virtue of faith in the soul that not only en enables you but compels you to believe the truth of all that God has revealed, and you've lost that virtue of faith by denying one doctrine of faith, that's all it takes, then the whole motive for credibility of the faith goes with it. Then what's the difference between that and denying all the doctrines of the faith for the same reason right. and becoming an apostate? So, I mean, what I, what I hear him saying is that essentially a, po a pope could be an apostate and be pope and still remain the pope. Mm -hmm. As long as he doesn't take the step to try to proclaim any, anything ex cathedra. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, then he's untouchable. I find that to be incredibly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Father, I, I, I've read through this article um, a, a, a couple of times now, and I, I, I found it really hard to follow his, his line of reasoning. Um, it, like you said, it's some kind is of... Is it a juridical thing with him? Is it like a legal matter, not a matter of it, faith? It's, it's, so yeah, it, it seems to me that he's really focusing on the, the, the practical side of things. So he, uh, it, the real hang-up with him seems to be that, um, you know, in order for a, a pope to be removed from office, that there has to be a, a, a actual body of men and authority to remove him from office. Mm -hmm. And he says that... Uh, you know, if we get to the point where we have a heretical pope, then probably the, the rest of the hierarchy, the bishops and whatnot, they're not going to be virtuous enough to remove a heretical pope. So it's not possible. Uh, so that seems to be his real big hang up. Well, if the heretical pope appointed them yeah. and, and chose men like him, then yes, I, it's a, you'd get in a situation like that, which is what you have today in the Novus Ordo, in the New Order, right? Mm -hmm. So he says, so practically speaking, we have to admit this because uh, there's there's no there's no other authority. practical solution. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's no other practical solution. Right, That's exactly. what he's looking at—a practical solution. Yeah. Well, if you start saying that the very existence of the church depends upon the practical solutions, <laughs> then you know, at the when the, our Lord's body was taken down from the cross, I tend to think you'd have a little problematic. Uh, you would have been in those who, who might not have, uh, you know, <laughs> been in tune with God's plan. But anyway as the apostles were. Uh, they were pragmatists at that time. They didn't see any way out of this, right? Yeah. In the course of the years that we've learned, haven't we? Or we should have, right? That when it comes to matters of faith and morals, we cannot be pragmatists. And the church is not just uh, endowed with, with mortal life. It has the immortal life of Christ. And God can do things that are, to us, not practical. Uh, so um, if, he, but if he's going to go by that and say, well, the law... You know, you, it's a judicial matter. You know, the, the matter of a pope having the Catholic faith is a matter of judicial, it's a matter of law, purely and simply a matter of law. It doesn't, it's not intrinsic to, to the nature of the office itself. When our Lord talks about making Peter the shepherd so that having confirmed, having been confirmed in the faith, he would turn and, and confirm the faith, faith of the brethren. You know, this is the whole point, right? This is the point of the papacy to confirm the faith of the brethren. But but he says that it's only a juridical matter. Yeah. <clears throat> if, uh, if I could just read a direct quote, Father, he, he mentions the 1917 Code of Canon Law that I read before, how the, the office becomes vacant uh, mm -hmm. um, by, by someone who publicly defects from the Catholic faith. But his, he says here, Father, that that is a principle of law, not a principle inherent in the natures of things. Um, not sure exactly. He's really off base here. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the church's law is based in the inherent nature of things. The church's yep. law expresses these things. Exactly. Human law, not so. If you want to reduce the church's canon law to mere human law, mm -hmm. okay, then he would have a case. Mm -hmm. But we're dealing with law that comes down to us where the church is guarded by the authority of Christ in the magisterium in her faith and her morals and subject to that question of morals behavior, human activity, actually putting the faith into practice, you have the principles of law, right? And um, the supreme law of the church, as canon law says, is the salvation of souls. It goes back to that. It is not divorced from morality. It is not divorced from the very nature of things. It is not somehow distinct from the, than the faith itself. It's got to be an expression of the faith. 
in terms of ecclesiology, the church has taught that the church's canon law is a secondary object of the church's own infallibility. And so the church cannot con contradict her morality by bad law. It's, it's out of the question. If you find a law in the code of canon law that is at variance uh, and, and rejects the principles of Catholic morality, you have to reject that law entirely. Right. You know what this reminds me of? This brings to mind, a, I wouldn't call it a debate. It was like a spirited discussion. Uh, Father Kelly, when he was Father Kelly before he was consecrated a bishop, um, and I met with uh, some conservative Novus Ordo people, laymen and clergymen. And at one point during the discussion, which was recorded but never aired, um, because I don't think it turned out the way they wanted it to, <laughs> but I, I was talking to the uh, the clergyman, okay, who's a rather well-known uh, conservative Catholic clergyman right now. I was talking to him and uh, about the marriage annulment situation in, in uh, this country and throughout the world. And he was agreeing with me. And he actually agreed. He said, the vast majority of these marriage annulments are bogus. And people who, on the basis of these marriage annulments, give it out uh, by the church after Vatican II, he says, uh, are, are living in adultery. These are adulterous unions. He agreed with that. And I said, but in your parish where you are, you know, do you oppose them or do you, what do you do to express the fact that you don't believe that these are valid, these are actually leading to adulterous unions? And his answer was, well, it's not my place, it's not my place to oppose them. It's not my place, okay? My place, juridically, you might say in the church, is I just have to go along with whatever, you know, that's what I have to do. I have no choice. And, and I, I'm sorry, uh, I said something to the effect, and not exactly, I said, but that's what, uh, that's what Rudolf Eichmann was saying. That's, that's what the Nazis were saying, you know, after the war. Well, it was my place. I was a functionary. I just had to do what I was told, and I had to follow orders from, from high command, you know. Oh, I, I don't think they were very pleased with that. Um, I know they weren't very pleased with that, but I mean, I, I just couldn't help it. That's what it seemed to me we're talking about here. We're talking about a pleasing men rather than pleasing God. We're talking about displeasing God rather than offending men. And this is the source of all of it, the crises the church has ever faced. The, the idea of avoiding offending men in order, in order to please God. Uh, rather offend God rather offend God than displease men. Um, so, uh, but I would say it to him again today, I think, it's, I think that's exactly what we're talking about here. It's all of these people in the church who are just functionaries who are going along with the devastation and will not stand up, as Monsignor Lefebvre did, as he stood up and uh, said, no, this is wrong, I cannot in conscience do this. Look, what the, the bishops, all of those bishops, all of those bishops, uh, well, let me put it this way, none of them did what he did. There were others who voiced their support for him clandestinely and uh, tried uh, individually to resist changes and the damage they did, but no one did what he did. Uh, and uh, this is the tragedy if people had not just in the pew, 
But in the parishes, in the rectories, in the chancery offices, if they had stood up and said, no, this is wrong. The modernists could not have did what they did. What they, did. they could not have done what they did to the church. But they were counting on everybody just going along to get along, you know. And it worked for them uh, with most people. But those traditional Catholics who will not give up their faith and not give up the practice of their faith, the traditional Catholic religion. These are, they've got to be impeached. They've just got to impeach these people. Right? Too rigid, huh? They're too rigid, absolutely. So, um, Anyway, I, I fear for those who think like uh, this gentleman here that because uh, they're ultimately going to be um, having to deal with contradictions in their own mind and their own way of thinking. And how they're going to resolve them, I don't know. But they're, they're setting up a dilemma for themselves that is, that is a, a real contradiction in terms. This is the kind of things that cause crises in conscience for people, this kind of thinking eventually. But it does show this, it just so that Francis is affecting the minds and the faith of even those who oppose him. Even those people who are opposing Francis right now and recognizing what he's doing is wrong, they are, are, are being affected by him. Their faith is being affected by him. Because they're, they're still finding it necessary to somehow salvage him as the Pope no matter what he may say, and no matter what he may do, as long as he doesn't try to make it ex cathedra, and they're desperately, and I've used the word desperately advisedly, trying to find a way to avoid, absolutely avoid the question of, well, is it possible that he is not the Pope? And never was, because he never had the faith to begin with, you know? Because then they have to face the question, well, where does that leave us? They don't want to face that question right now. But uh, I think sooner or later they're going to have to. Okay. Anyway, I, I do pray for them, all of them. And uh, so, well. Uh, well, thanks for being here tonight. We, uh, we got, through, uh, got through a little bit, not as much as we, we wanted to, but uh, we can perhaps save uh, all the emails that we have and all the other mm. topics for uh, for another time. So thanks, thanks for being here tonight. All right, and I thank our viewers and our emailers for their patience because mm. it uh, it takes a lot of time. Yes, <laughs> but we will get there. We will arrive. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Thank thanks, you. thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.